0: Welcome everyone. This is the Council of Institutional Investors educational podcast. I'm Lucy Nussbaum, a research analyst at CII. On this episode, we will discuss a set of standards on human capital management reporting published by the International Standard Setting Body, the International Organization for Standardization, or ISO. Our special guest today is Jeff Higgins, who was the lead U.S. representative on the ISO task force that created these standards, and is the CEO of the Human Capital Management Institute. Welcome, Jess, and thank you for speaking with us. Uh, thank you, Lucy. It's
1: wonderful to be here.
0: Great. So, Jess, tell us a little bit more about your work creating these standards. What areas do the standards cover, and what do they ask companies to report on?
1: Uh, that's a great question. So, the standard is called uh, Guidelines for Human Capital Reporting. And it was created over a three-year period really from 2015 through 2018 and published in december of 2018 and so uh one of the easiest ways to think of it is for hr well accounting and finance uh, by comparison has generally accepted accounting principles international financial reporting standards uh, a lot of governance from the sec um, aicp and other governing bodies hr Uh, does not have the equivalent. So HR has really been way behind in terms of standards for people, talent, human capital, if you will. Uh, And so, ISO, uh, Germany actually was the lead uh, country, but there were over 20 countries involved and over 100 countries voted on the standard uh, over several years, kind of working in groups and teams to come up with a set of metrics across different categories of, of talent management. Uh, And I'm happy to list those categories in a moment, but basically it took a long time uh, a lot of negotiation involved, but it's really the first I guess found big foundational stone for the equivalent of generally accepted uh, Measurement and reporting principles for HR and talent if you will
0: Great, so thank you so much Um, How did you choose the specific metrics that were included and how can they help investors?
1: There was really uh, an involvement of, I guess, 20 to 40 different experts from different countries around the world uh, working in uh, working groups who all proposed different kinds of metrics. And really, it was initially trying to come up with what kind of area or category would be measured. Uh, and so there was a lot of time spent just coming up with the categories, and I'll, I'll list those uh, now. So really. They were called human capital areas so you could think there's a dimension or a category so compliance and ethics was one costs diversity leadership organization culture organization health safety and well-being uh, productivity uh, recruitment mobility turnover kind of one sort of uh, uh, category and skills and capabilities succession planning and workforce availability So uh, really 11 different categories, uh, and so a set of metrics were identified within each to measure that. So there are approximately 23 metrics that were identified. And by the way, all the metrics were identified. There's a total of 60. Uh, All the metrics that were identified were segmented between is it something that should be measured or reported internally or externally and also subcategorized between large companies or small to medium sized businesses. So ISO and the standard was created with the the thought in mind that one shoe size or one standard is not necessarily going to fit all. So uh, the requirements for either public disclosure or measurement and reporting to be compliant with the standard are much lower for small to medium sized organizations than large organizations. So, for example, for large organizations, the standard would have all 23 uh, public disclosure metrics included and 60 for internal reporting. And then uh, each of the metrics was really more of a negotiation and, and trying to find consensus with a wide variety of experts from around the world. Is, is it is it important does it does it measure something that's within each of the human capital areas and is it is it going to be you know something that could ideally stand the test of time uh so there were some who wanted hundreds of metrics others who wanted a very very small number uh, and there was sort of a, a a compromise to meet in the middle with approximately 23 for public disclosure and 60 for internal measurement and reporting to be fully compliant with the standard.
0: Great. Sounds like there was a lot of good deliberation going on. Um, one of the concerns with non-financial reporting is that not not all information that is seen as useful to investors is easy to measure. How did you grapple with this challenge?
1: Uh, that's a great question, and I think the the answer, the challenge, or the answer to that is an ongoing uh, discussion. Uh, because, uh, for example, me, you know many of the metrics uh, were actually uh, or at least the areas in, in particular, there was input that was provided by in the institutional investors. So there's uh, multiple bodies. Uh, BlackRock uh, provided limited input. The Human Capital Management Coalition, or HCMC, which I believe are part of the CII, provided input, uh, as did some of the individual organizations. So uh, good news is that there were there was input and, and uh feedback and thought that came in from an investor standpoint um, that was very valuable and that was taken into account on the metrics. Um, However, uh, at the end of the day, these are really just the start. If we're thinking of this as sort of like the uh, gap or generally accepted principles for HR, there are probably going to end up being a lot more metrics uh, over time that will be provided to investors. Uh, which is, uh, I would argue, a very good thing. So more information is better than less. Uh, And investors can always make the decision uh, to use or not to use certain metrics. So what I'd like to maybe just take a moment, and I'll actually uh, go through uh, the majority of, or actually the 23 internal, or excuse me, external reporting metrics, uh, because we would love to get feedback from the, CII, Council of Institutional Investors, on the applicability and validity of some of the metrics that have been recommended are in the standard because I can uh, speak from uh, experience and knowledge that many large organizations today, uh, uh, a ton of organizations outside the US and a smaller number inside the US, are actively working to be compliant with this new ISO standard and to have a report ready. Uh, because they're, frankly, they're anticipating questions starting to come, perhaps as soon as uh, you know this proxy season, uh, which is already upon us, um, from institutional investors. Notwithstanding the coronavirus kind of changing the the direction and, and color of all conversations uh, these days around the world. Uh, so the first is compliance and ethics. So uh, really two items: number grievances and disciplinary actions. Now that's one that talking to clients there's probably more flexibility rather than less because grievances is something that's more of a union related uh, metric and for non-union organizations it, it may not apply at all uh, and so organizations have the opportunity to kind of uh, make some decisions about what level just like the, sort of the art and science that goes into uh, financial reporting exactly what how they interpret that and what they're reporting so as long as they disclose their assumptions and their thoughts Uh, In terms of disciplinary and whether that's legal procedures uh, or other kinds of HR uh, Issues that come up is one thing another one which we find very universal in terms of value creation total cost of workforce uh, which is total labor costs, including contingent labor costs. And that's a huge piece of the labor costs, which has been excluded from the majority of organizations reporting, certainly inside the U.S. because it hasn't been an SEC requirement. Uh, diversity across literally six different components, so age, gender, disability, ethnicity, leadership. And by the way, that's the one that organizations are most actively planning to be compliant with. Uh, going into this uh, annual report and proxy season, uh, leadership trust is one, uh, and I won't. That's a longer story. I won't go into too much on that. Uh, lost time injuries, accidents, and fatalities that most organizations already required to report to the government. Many industries already report and disclose. Uh, getting a little more, uh, I guess, a little more analytical. EBIT, rev per revenue, and profit. So revenue, profit, and EBIT per FTE or employee, which are already, again, already disclosed reported, except they should include contingent workforce. Uh, A new one for workforce productivity is called human capital ROI. So for every dollar, or you pick your unit of measure, pound, uh, euro, et cetera, what is the return on human capital? So for every dollar you invest in workforce, what are you getting back? Is it... 10% or is it 110% or in the case of oil and gas, it might be 800% for every dollar. So essentially for, it's a gross profit uh, essentially divided by your total workforce cost or TCAL metric. And then there's others like average time to fill, critical uh, roles, time to fill in days. So how long does it take you to fill jobs? Internal hires, which is think of it as internal promotions, are that's a great metric, by the way, for institutional investors. I would strongly suggest they put some effort into that one because uh, that really says, is the organization building or buying their talent? And every organization, especially large ones, like to say that, that they do a great job of building when, in fact, the majority of them probably buy the majority of their talent and oftentimes even in critical roles. So it can be a surprising uh, level of insight. Just is, is there a strategy really to build or buy? And why investors should care is building is less expensive and creates more long-term value than buying. Uh, turnover rate, so attrition, and also re- regrettable and non-regrettable. Training and development investment, in particular training and development as a percentage of the total labor cost or as a percentage of total operating expenses gives great context to that. And that's one that many organizations are already starting to report. And then lastly, Workforce availability around total number of employees and full-time equivalents, including and excluding contingent workers. So uh, by including total employees and full-time equivalents, you could get an idea of how large is your part-time workforce as well. And so the idea, and the only other metric that I really would argue should be disclosed, and some companies are, but wasn't in the list of 23, is overall engagement score. So that's a voice of the the employee uh, feedback uh, mechanism and tool, which is also fantastic. Uh, So, we really believe, those involved in creating the standard, that this is a great basis or starting point for not only companies to disclose what is arguably the most valuable asset, but a great starting point for institutional investors to use in getting better insight and transparency into this most valuable asset from an ESG sustainability and long-term value creation approach.
0: Great. And how do you respond to the sentiment uh, by some investors and um, expressed by SEC Chair Jay Clayton that human capital management metrics should be industry specific?
1: Uh, I I would both agree and disagree with that. I and, and the challenge with a lot of the debate and when you have nothing. So right now, in fact, there was a great conversation that came up in a in a peer group session I was in late last year. So uh, let me lead with that for a moment and then answer the question. Which is that there were a couple of very large, uh, and we actually had some institutional investors and I believe a CII member in the room, um, and we had a number of large companies that were also there. And one of the large companies had someone who was a bit of uh, a bit less, I guess, uh, uh, willful or more reluctant to disclose, and basically made the comment, "I don't think my top management team is going to be willing to disclose any of this information at this time." You know, the metrics are just there. You know, they're not uh validated enough they have not time tested uh and there's too much risk involved in disclosing them uh and and they don't want to be judged by investors based on these new metrics that are they're saying or, or a person's arguing or effectively unproven and the uh, institutional investor in the room said oh so you would rather have us make judgments about you on nothing because today what we're getting from you is nothing um, or, or even worse, we can go to social media sites like Glassdoor and others and get anecdotal information, which, by the way, is almost always negative, uh, or social media things that come out into the, the public media from a social media standpoint, which is, again, almost always negative. Is that how you would prefer to be judged? Will all the company uh, leaders in the room mouths dropped open? It's uh, No. So they simply hadn't thought through, you know, they're kind of knee-jerk reaction concerned with disclosing more information, but not not really appreciating institutional investor concerns that, hey, nothing is not a good standard for transparency or understanding of this most valuable asset. If the argument's over, everyone agrees that it's the most valuable asset, why aren't we disclosing more? And back to, so now to Chairman Clayton's comment, which should be industry-specific. Well, if I go to Gap in financial reporting there are specific those those are rules and guidelines as well as sec reporting guidelines that have uh, variability and flexibility across industries so different industries rely on different versions of profit uh, different definitions of gross profit different definitions of net revenue in fact uh, organizations in current accounting uh, and regulatory disclosures, there are already industry specific variations, and so we would argue the same should apply here. Yes, there are significant differences across industry, except just like in financials, revenues and profits are universal. you need to report those uh, is it however, are you much more about free cash flow and EBITDA substitute, or is it uh, net pro- no Pat, net profit after tax or? Or is it, uh, is it something that would be uh, a bit of an you know an alternate metric uh, that you like to include that is not even necessarily gap reported but the industry likes to use it. Um, so there and uh, also of course there's the uh, you know your earn, earnings per share and all all of those kinds of calculations so across different industries different profit or success metrics at the bottom line are used different definitions of, of top line revenue, and even uh, in particular, you know whether something's capitalized or expense, or whether it's part of cost of goods sold or operating expense, there's a lot of flexibility in all of those that are pretty standardized across industries. Again, same thing should apply for organizations. Uh, the workforce is very critical in oil and gas utilities, but it's a very small percentage of the revenue and profit stream. Uh, whereas in healthcare, financial services, uh, people are probably 70% or perhaps even more of your total operating expenses. Uh, and in manufacturing, it's another interesting story. You, you know, people are the biggest cost of the por- biggest portion of your operating expenses, but they may be a relatively small part of your cost of goods sold. Uh, and so the, the arg- I think the argument is sort of the yes, yes to both is that some things are universal, like uh, how many people you have how much cost you have invested in your workforce how is it changing your turnover rate or attrition rate uh, your your return on your human capital roi or return on human capital invested your training investments i think these are universal metrics your internal hire rate your time to fill are relatively universal but others perhaps could be adjusted so for example some industries might want to report ebit per employee or revenue per employee more than profit uh, or there, again, there are different kinds of productivity metrics uh, and even different types of metrics that could be used for some definitions of uh, costs and contingent labor and even FTE calculations. So uh, again, I think both uh, universal and industry specific are correct, but some metrics I would argue are completely universal and should be, if not identical, very, very similar so that they can be benchmarked and comparable across industries. Others can be more customized for the industry. So, for example, turnover rate. Turnover rate in some companies may only be 5%. Uh, a great example is utility companies. Uh, typical turnover rate or attrition rate, less than 10%. Whereas you go to hospitality or restaurant companies, it's probably over 100%, and that's if you're doing okay.
0: Great. Thanks. Um, so, you've mentioned how, the, how this standard kind of complements other financial reporting frameworks. However, there are some non-financial reporting frameworks, including SASB and GRI, that include some forms of human capital management reporting metrics. What sets the ISO standards apart, and how, if at all, have you interacted with these other frameworks?
1: Uh, great question, and actually, that's part of the the ongoing conversation. So, one of my colleagues who is also very involved in the ISO uh standard creation human capital reporting standard and is also a, a secretariat of the uh i entire hr standards setting committee and body that's working on a number of standards uh he's actually interfacing with both gri and SASB, so uh they as well as independent groups that were put together uh, a group called epic which was sponsored by Ernst young but also involved A lot of private companies and public sector asset managers and institutional investors all have come up with some of their own frameworks. Uh, What we've done, we've done a bit of a comparison and a gap fit between them. And what we've noticed is that in general, uh, the metrics that are identified across all these groups are almost identical to what the ISO standard includes. Uh, the advantage of the ISO standard is it goes much deeper and it has a broader list of metrics. So I think every single standard is talking about attrition rate, talking about, uh, labor, you know, total workforce cost, uh, talking about engagement score and, uh, a bit, bit more visibility on uh, your contingent workforce size uh, and total training investment, but the, after the top five metrics or so, that's where the I think the agreement starts to drop off. And SASB in particular, and others, tend to have a lot. In, and GRI both tend to have a lot of qualitative statements rather than hard metrics. So, I think they would agree, and and have agreed at least uh, privately in meetings, that uh, without hard metrics, it's too easy for organizations just to say, yes, we're doing that, we really care about it, it's important to us. But they're not providing any kind of a benchmarkable metric uh, to to know kind of where they're at in the scheme of of good, bad, or just starting out, other than just the qualitative commentary, which probably is much harder for institutional investors to utilize and compare. so what we're doing is actually trying to recommend that dri sasb and other institutional bodies uh, including uh, european uh, commission bodies uh, point to the iso standard as a starting point for better compliance uh so that's we'd say that's probably the best starting point and commonality we're hoping that all the different standard setting bodies Will reference the ISO standard, particularly for human capital, because many of them are talking about other things around sustainability and you know environmental, social, and governance factors. Uh, whereas we're really covering what we call human capital, which is a part of social and governance. Uh, it's, it's certainly sustainability, but not not per se the, the you know a central focus because uh, oftentimes it's much more on the environment and long-term sustainability in terms of materials and suppliers and other things like that.
0: Thank you so much, Jeff. I think uh, with the recent coronavirus outbreak and the ensuing economic hardship, many mar- market participants have realized just how valuable human capital is and how important it is to evaluate these risks. Uh, you've mentioned that you've seen some significant milestones in terms of response uh, so far from both the investor and issuer communities and that you anticipate more in the coming proxy season. Um, what can investors who want this kind of information do to move the ball forward.
1: Oh, great question! And uh, so, just I guess a couple of quick comments, and then uh, on to the answer to your question. Uh, just got off of a, a peer group call with about 25 organizations, including again a couple of uh, institutional investors were on the call as well. And the consensus: a lot of very, very large uh, banks, um, investment organizations, uh, manufacturing organizations, even health, even healthcare. Organizations uh, all on there. And the consensus among all was uh, whereas the last crisis was a financial crisis, um, and probably human capital or people talent, if you will, uh, was probably not treated as much of a, a central uh, asset uh, during that crisis. Uh, in fact, every organization I talked to for years afterwards said they probably mishandled that, they overcut, they cut the wrong jobs, they didn't act soon enough. Uh, all kinds of mistakes were made that they they sometimes took years to correct down the road. This is very much a human crisis. this is a a social crisis. this is not it, it can create a financial crisis, but this is really all about people because it's impacting your workforce and your employees and so uh the consensus from the group is that human capital is going to come out of this crisis more important than ever before. There was definitely a lot of movement uh in that direction you know which uh Best example of that, you know, uh, the public statement signed by the the business roundtable and other groups uh, where it's really being acknowledged widely by uh, large, uh, large companies and the leadership teams and CEOs. But really now, human capital and and taking care of your people uh, and figuring out how to plan for your people in a, a pandemic type scenario. It's very much center stage every day for every company around the world. In fact, I would argue every company is going through the pandemic scenario today uh, for better or worse. And in some, for most, it's a potential downsizing if their revenues taking a hit. But for some, like uh, uh, General Mills or certain healthcare companies, their demand is surging. So if you're a hospital, <laughs> your demand is up. Uh, your, your business is up in many cases because you, you're taking a lot more coronavirus patients. Uh, and if you're a provider, of something that adds like food, if you're in the food supply chain and delivering your demand may well be up uh, and up considerably. So everyone is having to deal with that. So to your, to your question, I guess the, the answer would be this, this journey is, uh, if anything, going to accelerate once people can focus on again and come out of the crisis. And the way institutional investors can help is to ask questions on the quarterly calls, ask questions at the board meeting, ask human capital oriented questions, because uh, there are still lots of CEOs and senior level managers and CFOs uh, who are not converted, if you will. And they see that, they don't see that as an essential part of the organization, uh, still wanting to manage by kind of the old ways and the old metrics. Uh, and the best way to move them off the dime uh, that I can possibly imagine is for a large institutional shareholder to ask tough questions uh, about the organization's talent, human capital, and its link to risk, which is very appropriate uh, today, and value creation and what the organizations are doing to take care of the workforce and ensure long term stability and growth.
0: Thank you very much, Jeff. That concludes our podcast episode. Thank you all for listening to this installment of the Council of Institutional Investors podcast series. Thank
1: you for listening to this episode of the Voice of Corporate Governance brought to you by the Council of Institutional Investors. The Voice of Corporate Governance is a free, non-sponsored podcast that highlights critical developments in corporate governance and other important issues affecting institutional investors. The views expressed by those interviewed on the podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of CII or its members. For more information on CII and its policies on corporate governance, please visit our website at www.cii.org.